in the book that the people that loaned it to me gave it to me. They had to go find the last page, so I couldn't read it at first. But when they finally found it, wherever it had fallen out in their house, and gave it to me, I was struck by the fact that on the last page, instead of saying the end, it said the beginning. And there's a very real sense in which the book of Acts is an introduction to all of what has happened since then. But there's also a sense in which it is a complete telling of a key uh, time period of the early church. And as we look back over the book, and as we look at this last chapter, I think we see what I put for the title that God keeps His promises. God's promises are true. We see it in a smaller sense in the life of Paul, but we see it in a broader sense in the book as a whole. And so let's start at the beginning of Acts 28 and see how God has kept His promises. It says, When they had been brought safely through, that is, at the end of chapter 27, they were all brought safely to land as after the shipwreck, and 276 people, according to verse 37, had been rescued and came to land, we found out the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island called Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. So the first way we see that God keeps his promises is that God had promised to Paul several times in these chapters that come before chapter 28, you're going to go to Rome, you're going to testify about me in Rome, and it seems like a mere accident is going to derail that. Paul's gathering sticks. A snake comes out of the fire because it feels the heat and starts moving and it bites him. Not just a snake, but a poisonous snake that should have killed him when it bit him, but he doesn't fall down dead. God keeps his promise by miraculously sparing Paul's life. And I suppose somebody out there has probably come up with some kind of explanation like, well, Paul had some sort of natural resistance to the venom of the snake or one of these sorts of things, or I think it was in the Count of Monte Cristo, there was someone who would take a certain amount of a particular poison to build up a resistance to it. Paul's a prisoner on a ship. He's not doing any sort of creative things like that. This was clearly God's hand protecting him for the work that he had for him to do. The, the response of the people is interesting, too, because they see what Paul is doing, and they think at first Paul is a murderer, and justice has caught up with him. There's a lot of people that think that way in society today. They don't believe in God per se, but they believe in a kind of retributive justice. Sometimes they call it karma. 
Sometimes they call it paying it forward in a positive sense. And, and the idea is basically this. You do something good, something good will probably happen to you. You do something bad, something bad will probably happen to you. They looked at Paul. They say, well, something bad just happened to him. He must have done something bad. But we know from the book of Job that that's not always the case, right? Job had not done anything particularly sinful. He was clearly a sinner, but he offered sacrifices for those sins and for the sins of his family and for the potential sins that they might have sinned because he wanted to make sure that he was actively confessing his sin and the sin of his family before God. And yet his life was destroyed in a series of calamities. And so clearly... Bad things can happen to, relatively speaking, good people. It is also true that God does accomplish justice. And so in a reverse of what the people expected, here is someone who is guilty, with whom justice is finally catching up. It was really someone who was innocent, and the fact that he does not die from the bite of the snake is further proof of his innocence if the uh, pronouncements of the Roman officials and, and others earlier in the book weren't enough. Here's just another proof that even if human authorities, the Jews in particular, fail to recognize Paul's innocence, God recognized his innocence. The people then think, well, maybe he's a god. And we saw this earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 13, chapter 14, uh, Paul is speaking and they decide that he is a messenger of the gods and they try to do a sacrifice to him and he says, no, we're men just like you and he has this brief speech about what God is like and that he is not a god. And we see as we come down in verses 7 through 10 that he shows the power of God that is not his power, he's not the god, but he shows God's power to the people on that island. It does not say specifically that the people believed. And so we don't know for sure what the final state of their hearts was, but at the very least, they were touched and impacted by seeing God's work in Paul's life and God's work in their lives and God's work in the life of their leader uh, in the healing of his father. And so their response to that was, verse 10, many marks of respect and supplying everything that was needed. And so we see... God's hand in this as well. Paul had just been shipwrecked. He didn't have anything with him. But God's working in this circumstance provided what Paul needed for the next leg of the journey to make it to Rome. And so God is keeping his promise to keep Paul safe, to provide for his needs, to get him where he was supposed to be. I cannot promise to you that everything in your life will be easy. I cannot promise to you that God will give you everything that you could imagine that you could want. But we see from the example of Paul's life that God certainly has the power to take care of us, to meet our needs, and to fulfill the purposes that he has for our lives. Verse 11 uh, leads us into verse 14 where Paul has arrived at Rome. Uh, essentially what's happening is they go from Malta to the eastern coast of Sicily and then up the western coast of Italy and arrive at Rome. They find some brethren, and just as a point there, verse 14, they invited to stay with them for seven days. 
it's fascinating that the Roman guard uh, is willing to let this take place. I think it's a sign of his respect for Paul. I think it's a sign of God's sovereign control over the situation. Now, perhaps there was a legitimate reason for them to pause there for a longer period of time, some sort of provisioning of the ship or something like that. But I think we can also see in this God's sovereign control and the opportunity of Christians to gather with one another in sometimes unexpected situations. And so we should uh, keep an eye out for those sorts of opportunities. Verse 15 says, They came as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And we often think of Paul as being the one who's ministering to other people. But Paul needed ministry to himself as well. And we see that the result of this encouragement of these people being willing to travel this distance to meet Paul was that he thanked God and he took courage. And so perhaps there's someone in the church that you look up to as an example of spiritual maturity and you think that everything in their life is going well, and it may be. Remember that you have opportunity to encourage even those in the church who are doing well by your testimony of faith and, the, and, and ministering to them even as these brothers and sisters in Christ ministered to Paul. Verse 16, I think, is another sign of God's presence with Paul. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So Paul wasn't thrown in jail. Paul wasn't seemingly restrained in any great way. He just had a guard keeping an eye on him and to a certain extent was able to move about somewhat freely. And now we come to something that I think sums up sort of the the course of the book of Acts, where we started and where it will wrap up in verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect it is known to us that is spoken against everywhere." This is Paul's opportunity, verses 23 and following, to testify the gospel in Rome to the Jews. This is uh, what these last chapters are building up to. Is it going to happen? Is he going to be put to death on the ship because they're afraid the prisoners are going to escape? Is he going to drown? Is he going to die from the snake? Is he going to uh, be waylaid by robbers on the road up to Rome? Is, are any of these things going to prevent this coming to Rome and this testifying of the gospel? No. God protects him. God brings him to this point. But this is setting up for that day in verses 23 and following. And Paul begins by sort of setting the stage for a meeting, an opportunity to testify the gospel to the Jews of Rome. And he meets with some of the leading uh, religious leaders in the city and says, here's what's going on. I would like to speak to them. And, and their response is interesting. You would think that they would have heard something, but it seems that the uh, 
the anger toward Paul, the opposition toward Paul, was largely directed toward when he was in Jerusalem. And perhaps it was due to reason of cost or reason of uh, just the obstacles of making such a long journey that those who were opposed to him were not able to make it all the way to Rome. But it is surprising that he, they had not heard more specifically of the circumstance that he, had in, he was in. But at the same time, we have to think about what the ancient world would have been like. It would have taken time for letters to travel from one place to another. It would have taken uh, as much time, if not more, for people to travel as well. And so it wasn't like something happened in this city and then a thousand miles away somebody sees a news article about it and reads it instantaneously. And so uh, I don't think we should be surprised at what we see in these verses. Paul gives a very brief summary of what had taken place. I didn't do anything wrong. I was a prisoner of the Romans. They wanted to let me go, but the Jews objected and I had to appeal to Caesar. And that's why I'm here right now. And he says, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And this perhaps would have sparked their interest. What does he mean he's wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel? Uh, isn't he a member of this group that we've heard bad things about? And so how can he claim to have the hope of Israel as a basis for why he's been imprisoned? And so their response is, we haven't heard anything bad about you specifically, but we have heard things bad about Christianity in general, the way. Tell us more about that. This is the sort of invitation that Paul was looking for. It's one thing if you have to bring up the conversation. It's another if you say, here's why I'm in front of you today, and somebody says, okay, tell us more about what you believe. That was the sort of opportunity that would have been heartwarming and encouraging for Paul because he saw God working and bringing it about. So then we come to verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. We've seen this phrase before, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. So this is not disconnected, importantly, from the message of Christ and from the message of the other apostles. And trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, we see also Christ doing this on the road to Emmaus and in other places, showing that the Old Testament points to Christ as well as the New. And he did this from morning until evening. I'd make a wry remark about length of services, but that one gets to be a tired joke. So the point of this, though, is Paul is maximizing his opportunity to speak of the gospel. As long as they're willing to listen, he's willing to speak of them as these truths. And the reality is to walk through how the Old Testament points to Christ takes some time. And so he's speaking to them all day long. We see the responses that we've seen throughout this book. Verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. When they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Paul was not being very strategic here and basically alienating his audience and condemning them, was he? 
And yet, we have to think of the context of, of how and what Paul was saying. Paul is saying, you've heard the message of the truth. I've told you about the Messiah. He has come. He is Christ. Believe in Him. And they refuse to believe. And so we see this theme that we've picked up all throughout the book. God's own people largely rejected Him. When Christ comes to earth, they rejected Christ. When the apostles bring the message about Christ, they imprison them. When Paul brings the message about Christ, many of them refuse to listen to him. And so all he is doing is speaking sober truth and saying, this did not surprise God. This is your own responsibility. And God is going to save people in spite of your rebellious rejection. This is not a an example that should give us the idea that we have the freedom to, the moment someone says, well, I don't believe the gospel, to sort of go off on a rant against them. That's not the context of what's going on. First of all, because I don't think we necessarily have the weight of Scripture behind us the way that Paul did. And second of all, because consider Paul's attitude in this. We see his heart poured out in the book of Romans. He wants to see the people of Israel saved. He longs for their salvation. And so I don't think he spoke this in a hateful way or anything like that. He is just simply stating the truth. You've rejected Christ. God knew that this was going to happen. God is going to save people anyway. I have fulfilled my responsibility. And so I would urge you along the same lines. God is not surprised when people reject the gospel. God can save people. Even if this person rejects Christ, God can save another person. God can in time save even this person that rejected. Do what you must do, which is to share the gospel. God is the one who accomplishes the result. That's not on you. But if you fail to speak, that is on you. And so that's the tension that we have to have in our minds. Do we take the opportunities that God puts in front of us? And sometimes we pray for opportunities and we, we want something big and dramatic and flashy and like one of those signs that an airplane is flying across the sky or something written in big flaming letters in front of us. We want something that says, go talk to this person about Christ. But many times, what does it boil down to? You're in an elevator going up ten floors. You're standing in the lunchroom at wherever, or you're at the store and you overhear someone's conversation. Those are the sorts of things that are opportunities that we often don't take because we think, I don't have enough time. What are they going to say? Paul fulfilled his responsibility. We need to fulfill our responsibility to speak of Christ. Verses 30 and 31 uh, verse 29, I will read for you, but uh, the note at my Bible, and probably in yours as well, indicates that this was not in the early manuscripts, which means that it is probably not untrue, but it is very possibly something that someone who was copying this text later added as a clarifying note that was later made it into the, the manuscripts that we have from later on. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. The reason I say that is... Uh, we pretty much have that in verses 24 and 25. And so this seems to be a clarifying comment that someone sort of wrote in the margin that eventually got copied with the text. Um, and that doesn't mean the Bible isn't true. That doesn't mean that we've lost something important of the Bible. 
sometimes people will say, well, the manuscript that a particular version of the Bible is translated from has this verse, and another manuscript doesn't have that verse, and so if you take that verse out, you're subtracting from the Bible. No, we're trying to say, to the best of our knowledge, how was it written, and remove any errors of copying that were not in the original things that were written, but over time, over hundreds, over centuries, even several thousand years, there have been mistakes in punctuation and things like that that we are looking at and saying, to the best of our knowledge, what did the original say? That should not undermine our confidence in the Scriptures. That should not make us think, well, some key doctrine is lacking from the Scriptures because the important things that the Bible says, it says in a bunch of places. And so um, what God has said is true. We can believe it. We can follow it. And even if we don't see the same phrase in Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, if it's any, in any one of those places, we know that it was from God. He spoke it. And so these are important things for us to keep in mind. We come to verse 30 and 31. And he stayed full, two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What did God promise way back at the beginning of the book of Acts? You'll become my witnesses, and the gospel will go forth from Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That work was not finished, but it was begun in all of those places. God's hand was evident because despite all of the opposition against His church, it kept moving forward. Despite the fact that Stephen was martyred and Peter was killed and Paul is later martyred and all of those sorts of things were taking place and many people were put in prison and people lost their homes and their work and family relationships and all of those other sorts of things, none of those obstacles could prevent the spread of the gospel and the building of Christ's church. Why? Because ultimately it wasn't the work of any one of those people. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had foretold, in carrying it out. And God's hand is evident even in the fact that Paul is in prison, but he's in prison at his house that he is renting and able to move somewhat freely about the city, and he's able to proclaim the gospel unhindered. And so we see in that God's hand because the Romans have this predicament where they have someone who really they shouldn't be holding, but they have to wait until Caesar has examined him. Kind of like, a, you know, in our system, a case goes to the Supreme Court, but it takes several years to get there. So Paul essentially has an all-expenses-paid trip with a possibility of drowning and being snake-bitten and all of those things along the way to Rome. And God's put him exactly where he wanted him. And Paul continues his ministry. And from church history, we have good evidence to believe that Paul is later released, goes on to fulfill his desire to visit Spain, as he spoke of in the book of Romans. Later on, is arrested again, and by then the tide is turned in the attitude toward Christians in Rome, and he is martyred. We don't have that in the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends with, and God kept his word. God kept his promises. God is fulfilling the things that he said he would do. And so much like the tone of the songs that we sang this morning, the battle is won. 
We forget that sometimes because we're still sort of fighting it. But the battle is won. Satan is fighting a losing effort. Doesn't mean that there isn't danger. There is danger. Doesn't mean that life isn't hard. It is hard. Doesn't mean that we won't face death because unless Christ comes back first, we will. But Christ has conquered. The worst things that can happen to us in this life are outweighed by the glories of eternity. And even if we face death, its sting, its power, its condemnation is broken because of what Christ has done. And so when we read the book of Acts, it's easy for us to get caught up in details or in history or in all those sorts of things. But I want you to see when you when you sort of go to what's the very core idea of the book of Acts, God is building His church. He's doing it despite man's best efforts and without man's best efforts positively because it's the work of His Spirit. And the same God who was doing that then is doing that now. So that ought to give us hope. That ought to give us confidence to do what God has called us to do. So when you're talking to your neighbor, you're not sure if you should talk to him about Christ. If God could get Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, despite all the things we've looked at in these last few chapters, God can help you talk to your neighbor. Or your family member. Or your coworker. If God could look out for Paul in this way, God's not surprised when you're sick and you end up in the hospital, or you lose your job, or some unexpected tragedy happens in close proximity to you. God is not surprised by those things. God has a purpose in those things, and God is working through you in those things. We are a part of the same church that God began building in the book of Acts. And so our job, like Paul, is not to say our church is going to be a certain size and a demographic breakdown and all of these sorts of things, because ultimately that's up to God to a large extent. Our job is to faithfully do the work that He has called us to do. And if God could do it then, God can do it now. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, like Paul, are we being faithful? Are we taking the opportunities God puts around us? Not like the ideal opportunities that go exactly the way that we think that they ought to be, but the opportunities that are like, I just got washed up on the shore of an island. I have an opportunity to testify of Christ. I'm in Rome waiting, not knowing what the emperor is going to say one way or the other. But I have freedom to move about. So take up opportunity of those freedoms. I'm talking to people who know truth and are, have not responded to truth. And so I lovingly say, you can't keep rejecting God. Other people are going to believe and you're missing out and plead with them, you need to believe 
But God can save people even if you don't believe, but we want you to believe. These are some of the things that we see in this last chapter of the book of Acts. God keeps His promises. That should bring us confidence for those of us who know Him because He's going to be with us. That should bring fear if we're not sure that we belong to Christ because if I don't know that I belong to Christ, what has God promised will happen? Those who have rejected Christ will be eternally separated from God and punished. So make sure that you know where you stand before God today because God keeps His promises. And if you know where you stand before God today, take heart because God keeps His promises. In the life of Paul, in the book of Acts, in all of His Word, in your life, in the life of our church, God keeps His promises. So let's serve Him. Let's pray. Lord, there's many truths in this book that could have taken even more time to look at, but if we don't remember any of the rest of the things in this book, help us to remember that you did what you said you were going to do. You were going to build your church. You were going to do it through your apostles. And to a certain extent, you were going to do it in spite of anyone's attempts to stop your plan. Lord, may that give us hope. May that give us diligence to obey. May that affect the way that we live even this week in the way that we talk about you with one another and with other people who don't know you yet. Lord, help us to see the importance of this and the hope of it and things that you are doing in and through us just like you are doing through your servants in that day as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.